Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Scott Hiller to the Philosophy Podcast. Uh, I've known Scotty for a long time. We played against each other back in our college days. He was a four-time All-American attackman at UMass, uh, graduated in 1990. I was 89 at Brown, so we got to play against each other quite a bit. He scored a lot of goals on us. Um, and uh, we actually kind of came up through the ranks in, in uh, college coaching when he was the assistant at Harvard and I was the assistant at Yale. And then Scotty went, got his uh, law degrees, got, got a law practice and married Kelly Amonte Hiller, and they moved out to Chicago to, found, to start the Northwestern program. They've had incredible success. And while he's continued with his law practice, he's also been an assistant coach at Northwestern for all these years. They've won seven championships. And uh, Scotty and I have talked a lot of lacrosse, men's and women's, pro, box. It's all great. Really fired up to have you on the show, man. Yeah, thanks, Jim. This is, a, you know, we talk, so we talk a lot. So it's just another conversation that, uh, you know, maybe some, some people can listen to some of the conversations we have. <laughs> No doubt. I, I, um, it's my favorite thing to do is to, is to uh, talk lacrosse and why not record it and share it, right? Yeah, no doubt. No, it's, it's, uh, it's fun for me and I'm looking forward to it. And it's always a, a fun talking to you and it's a challenge too because you're, you're so knowledgeable. So you got to keep, it's like, uh, you got to be on my toes. So I was preparing, <laughs> preparing this morning and getting the mindset all ready to go. And uh, hopefully you can bring something to the table. You love it. All right, let's start off with your lacrosse journey. You grew up in Garden City, Long Island, New York. And uh, tell us how you got started. Tell us about some of your um, early mentors and, and um, you know, any, any stories, um, and people that had an effect on you. Oh, man. Yeah, there's so many, Jamie. I mean, it's just uh, um, so fortunate to be a part of the you know, lacrosse community since when I was really since I was a kid. I mean, I actually grew up first in Limburg, New York, and I was my first um, a club or it was at the time lacrosse team it was the Limburg Titans and uh, Quint Kestridge was on that team. And, you know, here we played together. And, uh, you know, after that, you know, my family moved to Garden City. And, uh, you know, from there, I really started with my father played lacrosse and football in Hofstra. And his, one of his fraternity brothers at Hofstra was Harry Royal, who was, at the time I was in Garden City, the lacrosse coach at Hofstra. And my father used to take me over to practice and, um, you know, drop me off and I'd be the ball boy and just kind of be a part of it and watch what those guys were doing. And it was so fun. And, and um, those guys at Hofstra at the time really took a you know, took, took, took me under that wing and just as an eight, eight, nine, 10 year old, and, you know, just showed me how to play lacrosse, talked to me about just any, anything really, it just kind of included me in everything they were doing, which was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I go to games, I'd be on the sidelines. Uh, you know, I remember at one point where I was really young, um, you know, Hofstra was playing army and I was watching from the sideline and I, I coach Royal and I was some nine year old kid. I go, I think that, defenseman he might have an illegal stick and coach royal is like scott come on i'm like go oh, look look and he's like you know what so i remember during the game they actually she checked it and he called it and they got an illegal stick and how scored a goal and 
after the game, he was all excited about it. It was pretty cool. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'm sure I'll we'll get into it, but you know, we'll get into box lacrosse and Canadian lacrosse. But Jamie, one of my first real memories of a college of a college lacrosse game was Hofstra playing NC State. Uh, and I, I don't know the year, but I know on that team there were some really legendary lacrosse players. And I remember one Stan particular Stan, Stan Cochran. Stan Cochran had eight goals, and I remember watching that game as a ball boy, being like, "Who is this guy playing? Nothing like I've ever seen before." You know, and, and he was scoring goals. And, he, and I remember seeing his stick. He had the stick that was bent, like the shaft was bent. And I remember looking at it as a ball boy. I'm like, this is just incredible. Um, and, you know, at the time, I didn't realize that on that team also, I think, was Tim Nelson and, and, and a friend of ours, Jeff Goldberg, too. That's right. Or, uh, Mother Wack. Yeah, Mother Wack was part of that NC State team that played at Hofstra. And, uh, and really, my first probably introduction to not only college across, but, you know, a different style across with the, with the Canadian way they play. Yeah, so cool. And then, um, Talk to me about uh, Garden City High School experience. Yeah, uh, obviously, you know, Garden City was, uh, you know, at the time we, had, we were, you know, when I was coming up, it was actually the, my ninth and 10th grade year. Garden City was in, in one of their downturns in, in high school across. I mean, we were losing a lot of games, uh, especially my freshman. I didn't play my freshman year, but my sophomore year, I started to play a little bit. And, you know, we were kind of like 500. We were losing, you know, time to teams like Elmont, who a guy named Chris Hine and, uh, you know, Farmingdale and, you know, barely, I think, 500. And my junior year, uh, we actually turned around, really kind of turned around in the Garden City, really got rolling again and really hasn't stopped since. Um, you know, I think we went to the county finals maybe, but um, Doc Darty was our coach, legendary, you know, old, you know, old school as you get, Doc Darty. Yeah. I mean, you know, chewing tobacco, getting in your face, mess, spitting tobacco on you as he's yelling at you. Um, you know, just just funny, funny guy and, and, and just a fun experience and a lot of really good, good friends from there. And a lot of guys at the time went to pretty, pretty, you know, Paul Basile, my best friend, next door neighbor, you know, went out and played Navy, had a great career there. And a uh, friend, Robert Griffith, went to Harvard, had a good career. And Peter Bennett went to Hobart. So we had a good group of guys in that senior class that all did really well. And, um, you know, actually, you know, we, we ended up, I think my, well, my senior, we went to the state finals and played West Tennessee uh, up at uh, Skullcroft Field at Cornell. Z? Awesome. Against Z? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And um, I Brian Keith and... Um, I was there. They were getting another just stacked team. They they smoked us. I mean, I remember playing. I remember playing those guys, and we had beat Yorktown in the semifinals at Mikey Stadium in West Point, and then um, you know got to go play at Shulkoff Field and Cornell for the state finals. And uh, it was a different different. We weren't just outclassed. I mean, it was they played defense. They played. They ran deep middies. We just I remember we were just you know it was like you know six six two at halftime and whatever the final was. We just couldn't even uh, we couldn't keep up with them. Um, you talk about. Doc Doherty spitting his tobacco when he's yelling at you. I remember going <laughs> to my very first as, as a college coach in 1991, I went to like Elmont. I don't know. Could it, it was Elmont versus somebody. And yeah. the Elmont coach was actually smoking cigarettes on the sideline. <laughs> You're right. And I, it was, um, Oh geez. I can't remember who it was. I, I your name is, is, Oh God. I can, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's so funny. <laughs> so good. So hilarious. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm, 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 sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I remember like when I, when I was in high school in my sophomore year, I mean, Hempstead high school was really good. Uh, it was funny. You know, they had Al Hodish was running this program and you know, Aaron Jones and, um, uh, they had a oh. defenseman too. Uh, Pratt. Defensive, uh, Pratt. And they got in Williams went to army and, oh, they, they, they I remember playing and those bug. guys. And he, yep. yeah, Heath Hughes, yep, Tyrone Payne, Tyrone Payne, yeah, Tyrone, uh, that's right, uh, Andre Anderson. I mean, these guys were like, so were like, yeah. I, I knew those guys because I went to the Rutgers lacrosse camp in the summer of 1984, which was like that was like the camp to go to, yep, yep, yep. Right? It was like the one of two camps I ever went to, and they put me, Corey Gavitt, and Steve Meyer. Yeah, on the Hempstead team. We were the attack on the Hempstead team. <laughs> That's and hilarious. We had, oh, we were a stacked team. And so I, it was it was a lot of fun playing with those guys. But uh, so you went on, you were on your way uh, with your boy Basile to uh, Navy, but you had the Navy prep school uh, um, yeah. um, sort of a halfway stop. Yeah, Paul had a little bit, maybe a couple, maybe a, G, a point or two higher on the GPA. So you got to, you got to go right to Naval Academy. <laughs> and uh, uh, my dad at the time was friends with... Um, well, still is, but I guess he's passed away. But Richie Mead's father. So my father's known Richie Mead forever. And at the time, Richie yeah. Mead was the assistant coach at the Naval Academy. So, um, you know, I couldn't get in with my grades out of high school directly. So he suggested, you know, you go in this Navy prep in Newport, Rhode Island. And, 
it's a pretty good deal. You get, if you get a 2.0 and pass all your classes, you get to go to, to Naval Academy. Uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't meet that criteria. <laughs> 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 but uh, what happened was, I, you know, probably like, I think in March, uh, I, I failed a class. Like, it was like a computer class. So if you, if you, you have a 2.0 pass all your classes. So I, I might have been close to the 2.0, maybe not. But I know I didn't pass this computer class in like February, March. So I had to come home. And I'm like, you know, what do I do? I remember making a call from the basement, or like the brig, they call it. So you had to like, you had to stay a week before you, before you let Naval Academy prep. So you had to go like into like this like area that they kept you in, like almost like, not a prison, but they call it the brig. So you had to stay down there and process yourself out. So I'm like, and I knew my first call definitely wasn't gonna be to my father because, you know, he, he wasn't gonna be happy. So I called uh, Guy Van Arsdale at UMass. And he said, Scott, how you doing? I said, Guy, uh, I think I need to, I'm not, not doing too good. I just kind of, I'm leaving Navy prep and he's like, you know what? Don't worry about it. We got a spot for you at UMass and we'll take care of you. And uh, we've always, you know, we liked you when we recruited you. So, you, you, know, you, you know, Dick Garber was always a fan of you. So anyway, uh, so that was the first call I made. Then the next call was obviously my, my father, my parents, and <laughs> clearly yeah, they weren't too happy. But, uh, but anyways, I, yeah, I, I think, well, we've talked about this before, Jamie, I went home and um, trying to figure out how to pull across and, you know, through, connections and the Hofstra stuff I ended up playing for Long Island Lacrosse Club as a 18 year old in between my freshman what would have been my you know my Navy prep year and my freshman year at UMass and it was probably the greatest lacrosse experience anyone could have had at that age I mean it was unbelievable at the time you know Long Island Lacrosse Club was the prominent lacrosse club the prominent lacrosse you know the best lacrosse in the world I mean yeah. you had every guy in the team was you know Di Tommaso and Sombrato and Randy Natoli and uh, Jim Hendrickson and, and uh, Larry Quinn, all these guys were playing. And, you know, you remember at the time, like, the U.S. making the U.S. team was really the, the end-all be the goal for, for a lacrosse player. If you made that U.S. team every four years, you got the helmet. And the helmet was the red, white, and blue helmet. And, and those practices at Lion Lacrosse Cup, everyone had it. You know, it was like 10 guys out there with the Team USA helmet. And those Wednesday night practices, I'll never forget, it was a, the best lacrosse ever played. I mean, we'd go Wednesday night for a couple of hours, and you'd be playing with the best lacrosse players in the world. And I was an 18-year-old kid out there. And those guys, Eddie Hughes and, and um, Scott Peter Van Hoffman, those guys took such good care of me. And they were so, like, happy to be just to mentor me and teach me to so play cool. lacrosse. And, oh, it was, it, was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was – You know, back, yeah, back in the day, when summer league was kind of the same thing, where you got oh. to play with older guys. And I, I, I believe this happens a lot in Canadian box lacrosse. And definitely, you know, um, you know, it, with, the, it, with the Iroquois, the way the Iroquois play, they play with a lot of mixed ages. And the coolest part is the older players do want to help you. They are mm -hmm. psyched to talk to you. And there's a real, it's not so much coaching as much as like a pass it down type of model of, of, of sharing. No doubt. And, and that happened on Long Island too. I mean, Kaniac Park was the mecca for lacrosse when I was going in high school and college, I mean, it was, it was Kaniac park in Hicksville and there was no coaches. You know what I mean? It was, you, you get together a team. It might be sponsored by a you know, local auto body shop or something where someone knew somebody at the pizza place or mostly bars, really. It was like you know, a local bar would sponsor a team yeah. or a bar would sponsor a team. And then you would go to the bar to the game and that's how they make their money. And like those teams were, and you go and 15 guys show up and there's no coaching and you got to sub yourselves and, it's like you're from usually I think you start playing in high end of high school and then but you're playing with college guys, post-college guys. Same thing though. Long Island. I mean, all the, I remember, you know, every you don't know who like Dave Petromal might be covering, you know, Pat McCabe, and every game was like there was all Americans all over the field. And it was just like you said, it, the older guys take care of the young guys, playing that up, playing up against, up against competition. And you did the same thing when you got older. You know, when I got to college at high school, you brought the high school kids on the same thing. And it was the it was the craftiness of the older guys that were oh. kind of a mind blower, wasn't it? Yeah, because you know you you only had whatever, you might have 14, 15 guys, and you had these guys trying midfielders. The older guys trying to play midfield, and how smart they were. And I mean, Vinny Sombrato played in that league until he was probably fifty years old. And yeah. this guy Randy Randy Natoli, and uh, I just remember those guys. They're such such oh, good yeah. guys, too. Yeah. And then the parking lot after was always a good place to learn and talk a little across, right? Well, yeah. Well, the funny thing is. Um, Ebbets Field, as it was a bar, it was right around the block from Kaniac Park. And Ebbets Field was owned by a guy named uh, Doug Dwyer, who was our assistant high school coach at Garden City for Dr. Darty. So, like, everyone would go there. And I remember, like, we couldn't go there because uh, he knew us. So, especially when we were in high school, like our juniors and seniors in high school, all the guys would go there. 
you know, Doug would see us in there, like, get, get out of here. And then, you know, when we finally got to like college and, and we were allowed to go in there, you know, it was, you know, we, we knew Dougie and, you know, it was awesome. And he, and then he would be, then he'd be like telling us stories, you know, he would be, you know, not, not that like we went from a high school coach to a friend and uh, it was so cool. And like I said, we'd be in there for hours and just hanging out talking. Talking lacrosse. Um, yeah. You guys had such an unbelievable run of talent at UMass. I mean, just rattle off the guys that you played with, you know, Tommy Carmine and Canelo, oh, yeah. And yeah. Jimmy Mack, and, you know, uh, Gancy and Carmine. Yeah, Timmy, yeah, Timmy Sedan and Sal. Sal, yeah. Sal. Yeah. Mark, Mark Millen. Um, you know, I think my my freshman year, you know, Tommy Carmine and Canelo were on the attack with me, and then Paul Gancy, and then, uh, you know, my senior year was Millen and um, – you know, we had Timmy Sedan, like you said, we had Sal, Sal I mean, but, you know, was on, Timmy's one of the best minis of all time. Sal Cassidy, one of the best goalies of all time. You know, we had a ton of talent, a ton of like just uh, individual talent on those teams and just fun to play with, you know, and I think that's the thing. It was fun. And Dick Garber, he certainly let you play. Yeah. And going to the hill. Oh. Well, that's how, the hill. Oh, that's how I ended up at UMass, Jamie. I, I remember, you know, when I was being a ball boy for Hofstra, they took me up to, um, UMass for a game. I get to ride the bus and I went up there and I was like, this is insane. Like, I've never seen anything like it. You know, there's a gorilla running around, the place with <laughs> you know, 5,000 people there. There's kegs you know. buried in the hill. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, my freshman year, I never forget, like, uh, we were playing, I think, Army. And, like, I think at some point they banned alcohol from, from the hill, which is probably smart. But um, th they were like, the, the thing was, the, the guys would say at the top of the hill, the frat guys, all these guys, and then when they finished the keg, they'd roll down the hill. A lot of times, a lot of times, you know, they'd end up on the field, and you, know, you go, you know, you fight up there. You go in the stands, you get a beer dumped on you, and you know, it was uh, oh, crazy. Di different time. I mean, yeah, we played you. Uh, Eighty nine at it was, it was packed, right? It was, it was crazy. Oh, it was a beautiful day. It was a Wednesday afternoon. It was, you know, probably mid April, and every single time I touched the ball, Fire <laughs> Hill would just be like, Jay. Oh, my balls. So I remember this vividly that with you guys had, I don't know, must've been a 10 man ride or something. And, um, I was kind of open on oh, yes. the, Timmy Sudan, right? Yeah, I was open <laughs> in the clear by the midline on sides on the attack side, right by the sideline, by the Hill. And Lars Tiffany was the defenseman. He threw a high and away ball that went, went way too high. <laughs> and I saw Tim saw the ball in the air and he's like coming at me and I'm standing there and I'm like trying to look it off, like pretend like it's not actually coming, but he knew it was coming. And then it took a bounce on a kind of a slow bounce on the ground. And I just got <laughs> blown up right into the hill in the, uh, the kegs. Thankfully it didn't hurt that bad, but what an awesome environment that was. It was, it was nothing like it. I mean, I, I can, you think back, I, I kind of get sad when I see that now. I mean, obviously we still have decent crowds, but I mean, it, you know, on Wednesday, you play there on a Wednesday afternoon, there'd be 5,000 people there. It'd it was packed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, people be into it. And it, it was a, it was a lot of fun. The way you guys played lacrosse was so awesome to watch. Um, and you had so many great players, but you guys were, you guys did so many things um, team wise. Uh, so such great ball movement, um, such great feeders. Um, how do you, how would you sort of uh, describe what it was like to play offense then in, in the sense of how you guys kind of did it versus now where it seems like people are trying to construct all the stuff that you guys seem to do naturally. Yeah. We, we, we talk about this all the time, but it was just, you know, a lot, a lot more structure in today's, today's lacrosse. And we just, you know, we had coaches, it was coaches, it was Dick Garber who was just, you know, a legendary, iconic person, really. I mean, he was everyone's father figure. And, and he just, well, you know, he, he actually taught a class at UMass called The Principles of Fun. Like, that was a class he actually <laughs> taught. Like, in the Boyden gym, and right next to his office, like, regular every students could take it. And, and I think that was his philosophy. He's like, I'm going to let these guys go. And he would always say, let the fur fly, and, you know, we'll just see what happens. And you roll a ball out, and that's how he practiced. You know, he practiced, he just played. And by playing, you got, you got, you, you got, by playing that style or practicing that style and just no real structure, no rules. He would, I don't remember Dick Garvey yelling once in four years, you know, maybe something for somebody did off the field, but certainly not on the field. And it was just, you know, guys weren't tense. They weren't tight. We were just playing and we were just trying to make things happen. And, um, you know, we practiced a lot of up and down running gun. And I think a lot of it too, Jamie, you know, one of the things back then is those guys, you know, Dick Garber and, um, 
uh, Roy Simmons and, and some of the older coaches, you know, when they came up through the coaching ranks, they did it themselves. So they didn't have assistant coaches. You know what I mean? So I think, kind of, you know, once we started coming, you know, me and you, and we started coaching, you know, we, as assistant coach, when you're young, you want to be, feel like you're having some input. You want to have some control. So I think the advent of like the more the assistant coaches got involved, um, the more you started to see a little more structure when it came to some of this stuff. Um, you know, I think, you know, we started, we grew up, you know, me, you, you know, Dave Petromal became assistant coach, all the guys we played with. Um, and I'm not sure, maybe that's the reason, maybe, you know, because those positions became more prominent, those guys or, or people like us throughout the time, we had to, you know, make our mark somehow yeah. and, you know, start, start, start doing, not letting the guys play as much and maybe coaching a little more. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think, um, I, I was definitely a part of the, uh, the increased structure in the game as were a lot of the guys in our generation. Mm -hmm. And it was all in the mm -hmm. spirit of trying to do better. Right. Oh, no so, doubt. No doubt. Oh, no, doubt. I remember we, we were playing Syracuse at the carry zone by and like, we knew about Gary and Paul Gate clearly. Like we, there were there were juniors and seniors about the time, and I remember. And I think Dick Carr actually did this on purpose, probably trying to because you know probably trying to make keep it calm. But comes in the locker room. This is I mean there was no scouting report. This is like you know pregame prep talk, and we he's like, we haven't even talked about Syracuse yet. He's like yeah, they got these two guys at 19, 22. They're both lefties, I think. He's like just oh if they, if, you, if you get nervous, just play that left hand. <laughs> Here we go. Let's go get them. <laughs> you know? so um you ended up at harvard when i ended up at yale and and, and our bosses at the time were pretty similar old school guys uh, yeah. that honestly like I, I i i i don't know if i've said this to you but mike Walvogel and scotty anderson looked like they could be revolutionary war figures if you put like <laughs> a white wig on them <laughs> so true <laughs> but but it's funny because we've talked about how we both had this kind of a similar experience being on the staff. These guys were great guys and incredibly knowledgeable about lacrosse, but it was pretty old school and they, and they would not hesitate to get on you as the assistant. I learned the concept of mirroring when I became an assistant. I was the only assistant at Yale and I would like literally mirror Mike around the field. <laughs> so that I, I wouldn't get snapped on if the deep, if the offense screwed up. I felt the same. So many Scott, he was, Scott is such a good guy. I mean, I have so many great memories of Scott Anderson and, and, and that part that, you know, you know, those six, seven years I was at Harvard, it's just uh, learned so much from him. But like you said, it was like, you know, you didn't, you didn't, whatever went wrong, it was your fault. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, if you, you weren't there, if you had nothing to do with it. If you didn't see it, it was like, what the, why did you do that? How did this, you know, you, you know, you're all, like palms up all the time, you know, like <laughs> palms up. Like I, you know, it, yeah, it, but the right. thing is that that's just how they grew up. And by the way, they were the greatest guys. Like as soon as practice was over, oh, you God. know, it was oh. like, you know, it was like oh, family. But, yeah, but now I learned back then, um, you know, from, from Mike Waldvogel was massive, uh, particularly on the defensive side. What would you say you took from Scotty? Uh, yeah, I think Scott offensively, Scott was pretty creative. I mean, I think he was just, you know, he, he was innovative. He was, um, someone that wanted to, you know, oh, you know, he, and again, not so much, and allow me to do some things too. Like, you know, I mean, I think to a certain extent, what yeah. I learned from him was learning on my own because he ex expected me to do things. He expected yeah. me to run, he expected me to run the offense. He expected me to work with some of the goalies and stuff like that. So, um, and then when things didn't go right, obviously he'd like, you know, come at, come at you a little bit, which is, which has kept you on your toes. And I thought that was the biggest thing was just giving, giving you the ability to kind of try things and say, okay, this is yours, go do it. And, you know, and that was really, really helpful at the time. So um, let's talk a little uh, M-I-L-L lacrosse. Oh, my goodness. We were teammates on the Boston Blazers there. It was pretty much a UMass <laughs> team. Um, you know, New England guys, a couple of Brown guys in there, with like Gags and uh, Walter, mm -hmm. Salter, Catella. Oh, Walter. <laughs> the Rick Phil Rick is the best. You know, uh, Todd Francis and yeah. Jack Piatelli. Um, who else we got? Sudo, of course, Carmine. Uh, Dan O'Neill and uh, Chris Marty O'Neill. Yeah, oh, Marty O'Neill from, yep, Chris Cameron. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, of course, uh, uh, Randy Frazier. Yep, yep, yep. What a crew. Uh, Oh, it was awesome. I mean, such fun. Dave Donovan, such good guys. I mean, it's just like, you know, it was so much fun just to be around. You know, hey, like we said, same thing. We were having fun. We don't get, you know, we had to be because we I don't think we were losing money doing it. Oh, yeah. Days. 100 bucks a game. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, but and then you get taxed. But the, the experience for me, that experience was a game changer for me 
because I was just like, oh my God, this game, first of all, is so fun. And second of all, it made me so much better and gave me an understanding of, of, of lacrosse like I'd never seen before. Give me your opinion on how it, how it helped you or change your, your views. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, it was really hard for me, I thought. You know what I mean? I was like, you know, growing up, you know, playing field lacrosse um, and, and having, you know, some of the success I had at UMass, you know, seemed pretty easy. But when I, the first time I played indoor lacrosse, I was like, this is hard. I mean, I couldn't, you know, you couldn't score. Couldn't you, score. Really had to figure, you really had to figure out how to shoot. I mean, I, you know, when I was in college, I could just let it rip and, you know, most of the time it's going to go in. You know what I mean? I could shoot off both hands and I, for the majority of the time, if I got off quick enough, it was probably going in the cage. When I started shooting and I remember when I was in the goalies, I was like, whoa, this is impossible. You can't just do that. You know, you had to figure out how to score. You had to figure out what the goalie was doing and what the defense was doing. You had to actually figure things out. And um, I thought that was the most, like I said, frustrating and challenging and, and initially, and, and uh, especially someone who scored a lot of goals, you know what I mean? To not to have to have much difficulty doing something you've done all your life, I thought was hard, but like I said, it was fun. And once, once you started figuring out, once you started actually doing those things, once you, oh, if I look this way and shoot that way and the goalie moves, you know, you, you started getting creative and you're like, wow, this is really cool. And it really um, it, it made my game better, no doubt. Yeah, totally. So let's skip ahead to the Northwestern year. So you, you end up getting married to one of the all-time great women's lacrosse players, Kelly Monty. And uh, you guys end up moving out to Chicago and uh, starting that program. And you've been coaching women's lacrosse ever since. And I have to say, as a men's lacrosse coach and player, and I've started coaching a lot of women's lacrosse, I, I absolutely love it. Um, how, talk about your experiences with the game as, as well as, you know, how you guys built that program. Yeah. I mean, it was like I said, we moved out here in 2000, 2000, really. I guess it was 2000. Well. And, um, you know, Kelly was, I was finishing law school and, and, and uh, I had actually interviewed for a couple of head coaches out there. I think a couple at the time where I was just finishing up at Harvard and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Was it going to be a head coach um, and, or, go, or finish, go, you know, go to law school or whatnot? And I ended up going to law school. And then Kelly was kind of graduated from Maryland. She was kicking around a little bit. She coached um, at, at BU for a little bit at Brown uh, and actually was getting her master's degree at UMass at the time. And, uh, opportunity came up. Kelly's brother was playing for the Chicago Blackhawks at the time. He was a captain, and he knew some, in his he knew some people at Northwestern through um, when he played at BU. The, the athletic department at Northwestern had a lot of BU transplants in there for some reason, mm -hmm. and he got wind that they were going to start a women's lacrosse team. Uh, they had they had at a sport, and you know t someone from Northwestern got in touch with Kelly. She was 25 at the time, I think, and Tony's like, "Yeah, you should check it out." He's like, "I've rode, I've ridden my Harley down there. It looks pretty cool." You know what I mean? So um she came out she liked it they, they liked her um and she was you know she wasn't all she's very much a homebody she wanted to be a stay in boston she like she likes to be around her family and um you know we talked about it a lot and i'm like this is a great opportunity you know, why don't we just try it you go out there and I, i'm done with law school i'll get a job and you can kind of give this thing a shot your brother's the captain of the blackhawks you can go to some, go, go to some hockey games it could be cool so we did it and, you know, Kelly, just not someone to just, she just put her head down, you know, she's very motivated and she wasn't just going to be out here just to coach, you know, just to be a part of something. Yeah. Uh, Northwestern had never won anything at the time. I mean, they were in the dark ages of football and basketball and never been to, you know, a lot, the athletic department has never really won very much. And people would tell her that and she's like, that's great, but I'm going to win. And <laughs> she just put it, she just kept telling people that and people thought she was crazy. And slowly by slowly, she, the team started getting pretty good. She started a club team. And then the first year, eight, you know, won five games, eight games. And then um, the third year, they went to the quarterfinals. And then the you know, fourth year, they won the national championship. And it was a lot of fun and, and a lot of hard work. And, you know, she didn't need me. You know what I mean? I just, I was in it going, you know, 60, 70 hours a week at the law firm. But yeah, one girl at one point, you know, I just figured, you know, I can help. I play lacrosse. You know, I mean, I, I didn't know much about girls lacrosse except for you. We're just watching it being like, wow, this is really cool. And two, how do these girls play the whole game? You know what I mean? At the time they had like, you know, one midfield plays the whole game. And, you know, Kelly did it in college. And I'm like, this is insane. You know, these girls are so running up and down in the whole game playing. And I was just amazed by it. Um, but, you know, back to the you know, getting off track, but I was just thinking like, is there any way I can help? You know what I mean? I don't, I don't need, I don't, I don't want to like, she's got this thing going here after two or three years. And I'd go once in a while to practice and warm up the goalies and kind of, you know, give some advice here and there. And um, it's put the time. I'm like, anyway, what can I, well, how can I fit in here? What can I do? You know? And 
right around that same time, we Kristen Chelman was on the team, came, came into, came to um, Northwestern. She was a freshman and she came up to me once and said, Hey, can you help me shoot? She got, she just, Kristen Chelman was, was the type of kid who would first one to practice, last one to leave, extremely motivated, not highly recruited out of Massachusetts. Kelly found her at some camp. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, I'll shoot with you a couple nights a week. And you know, this girl, she was really good. You know, I'm like, well, we knew right away that we had something special. And um, so we started out a couple nights a week. We go in this indoor facility after practice and just work on it with the shooting, you know what I mean? Half hour. And then other kids started seeing that. And then more kids started, other kids like, can I get on this? Can I get on this? And probably by, you know, I guess our junior year, but, you know, by the middle end of the season, we, we, the whole team was in there. You know what I mean? And then we knew we Kelly knew we had something because the whole like, Kristen was getting actually annoyed because there was too many people there because she was missing out on reps. <laughs> you know what I mean? So then she on another night. You know what I mean? So, um, so really that's and then I started doing that and then, um, you know, slowly I got more and more involved. And then at some point, you know, uh, years later, um, you know, I was we got we started having family and whatnot and a law firm and, and a college women's and a division one coach is just too much to handle on anybody. I think. So I decided to kind of step back from that and get a little more involved with the lacrosse program and you know, kind of help where I can. And, you know, we, we bounced back and forth, Kelly and I, between coaching offense, defense, and just kind of seeing what assistance we have and how things fit. And it's been quite a run. You know, it's been fun. It's 20 years now almost. It's just 20 years, actually. This is the 20th yeah. season. And it's, it's crazy to think that, that we, you know, it was just in 2000, I remember vividly, you know, driving out here. You know, it's like, you know I drove out here, actually. We moved out here on 9 9 2001 so we didn't have, yeah. So, yeah so like on 9 11 you know, we had no tvs or anything i'm not you know i remember like we didn't know what was going on because we had just moving in our tv wasn't set up a cable wasn't set up and you know my mother called me i was like you why what's oh my i'm like what are you talking about you know, so we had to actually drive over to the northwestern Union, the athletic department to find a tv to watch kind of the whole 9 11 oh, thing God. so yeah and that's what's that's that was kelly's first recruiting class jamie was uh, uh first class our first class was that nine that, that 2001 class and trying to get those kids out here was it was crazy you know what i mean because they were all coming out the, the flights no one was flying at the time and they were all you know, we were bringing them all from the east coast uh and you know that, that was her uh, first freshman class to bring that that group out it was kind of wild times i remember that too you know having to recruit you yeah. know get on a fl- the planes were you know, empty and, and trying yeah. to get recruits to come out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the class of two Oh six was your guys first recruiting class, the class of uh, college Oh six, I guess. Uh, college Oh five was the first, uh, so they, they were seniors in Oh five. So they were freshmen in, in the fall of Oh one. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit, I mean, massive changes in women's lacrosse, from the time that Kelly got there to now, right? I mean, oh everything, uh, the rules, I mean, were the, there was no out of bounds back then, right? Like, that was the one thing I couldn't, that was the one thing I just couldn't kind of get my, wrap my head around. You know what I mean? There was <laughs> no goggles and no out of bounds. So if you no threw goggles, a ball out no of bounds, bounds, yeah. Yeah, so if you threw the ball with someone's head and, and you were closest to it, kind of like an end line rule in men's lacrosse, you draw a ball. So like, that's kind of, that's almost, help them to a certain extent because they were just that's how they would play a little bit because they weren't that skilled they were just trying to like do everything they could can to, to get an advantage so they would whip the ball someone's head the kid would run after get it and then have it back and it was it was wild um so but i i do remember that first championship it was the last year of um no boundaries and that was at the naval academy um in 2005. yeah so between the no boundaries i mean all the now now we got the shot clock you know yeah and um what an incredible rule that has manifested in so many goals being scored. I mean, you know, what was happening was people were, you know, swallowing the ball, resting, you know, trying to control the tempo. No uh, doubt. Stalling, if you have a three or four goal lead with 10 minutes left in the game, you might just stall for the rest of the time. And mm-hmm. so now it's like, you know, you guys were averaging, I think over 20 goals uh, before the season was called in 2020. Um, do you see scoring kind of getting into the twenties regularly with the rules, the way they are? I definitely, I mean, I think if, you know, if you, if you play, you know, play a certain style for sure. I mean, if you want it, we, we're, we're really pushing the pace and we're playing pretty fast. And, um, I think that there's no reason why you're not going to see, it's hard to play defense when it's lacrosse. I mean, you know that. Yep. And if you're playing fast and you're transitioning fast and you're attacking the cage, you're going to score goals. 
Um, you know, that's the one thing. It's really hard to stop goals too. So, you know, you're creating a lot of possessions for other teams and there's a lot of possessions when you play like that, but um, it's a fun way to play. I mean, the girls, that's what they want to do it. And, you know, we you don't, we don't overcoach them. And, you know, that. We, we've gone, we've, you know, we've run the gamut at Northwestern. I mean, like you said, we were in championship, a couple of those championship games, you know, there were nine, eight or eight, seven games where it was a total chess match. One team would sit on it and then, then, then they'd score, they wouldn't score. You get a draw control and every draw control was so, so important back then. Because whoever got the ball could, you know, it could be a four, five, six minute possession at certain times. And, yeah, and on uh, draws, it was like yeah. free for all. Like everybody could run in instead of just the three on. It three. was. It was. How do you complete... like it now? Do you like it better, or did you like it the old way? No, I like it much better. I mean, the old way was. I, I, it was dangerous. I, I thought, like you said, whistle blow, and it was a complete. Everyone converged on that on that that circle, and it was a you know it was it was really. Uh, it, well, I didn't think it was safe, and then it, it was fast. Yeah, it was, and it was very hard to get you know get control of it and you know you, you i remember watching some film clips and you see every person in the clip like you watch a draw and you have to like the, the thing you, you could count 22 people in like the the, the screen you're looking at and you're like look what is going on here you know, but, you know the, the only thing i liked about it was that it, it it did take away the advantage that can be such a game changer where yeah. you just have one person who wins every single draw and it's like yeah yeah. I, I don't like it to be more of a scrap, but I agree. It was, it was dangerous. Yeah, you're right. I and mean, there's definitely now women's across, they've definitely become specialists, no doubt about yeah. it. And, and Just like they that. have certain, yeah. And they have certain sticks, like companies make specific draw sticks and there's a lot of like nonsense that goes on around the draw, I think, which is unnecessary, but I, honestly, I, I'm definitely cool. some, yeah. Like I, I, you know, I'm someone though who leans towards getting, getting rid of it. I tell you sometimes, you know, yeah. Just let them play, you know, play yeah. like basketball. Well, for one thing, with how many goals are being scored, because, you know, it's the same thing is happening in men's lacrosse. Like, when you think about a shot clock, it constrains the amount of time the offense has. And one could think of that as almost like a defensive rule or a defensive mm -hmm. advantage. But what has happened is the offense just wasn't trying to score all that much. And, as soon, you know, when they try to score, they can still score at a pretty high frequency. So in women's lacrosse and men's lacrosse, there's a lot more goals being scored in the the game, you know, the women's lacrosse game is taking like, you know, oh, yeah, two half, yeah. 245. And yeah. it's a lot of it is because you got to walk it back up in the draw and it takes a mm -hmm. while to kind of get mm -hmm. it going. And mm -hmm. so uh, sort of the pace of play is incredible until you have to go like get that, uh, that draw again. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, we, some, we don't practice. Like we, we, a lot of times we practice without the draw. So we'll just play, you know what I mean? Goalie takes it out. Yeah. yeah. We play for half an hour and it's, it's, and then when you actually go back to the drawer again it's just like it feels so slow you know he's just like oh my god that's the kids just want to go you know so it's kind of it's interesting it's amazing the stick technology as well oh, between man. when you guys got started there and now no doubt about it I, when i first picked up a girl stick i was like oh how do you how do you play with this thing and now oh, i can, it a Brian I can yeah you know, it was it was you know leather and tight and you had to really and, but you know now i can kind of I could pick up any girl stick and play almost as well as I could with a guy stick, I think, you know, and shoot and underhand and control it and do all the things that, you know, you can, most, a lot of guys are doing. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the, with, with the sticks now, you can absolutely do everything. Uh, and uh, you can generate serious heat. It's actually, you know, you talk about the no goggles back in the day, but even now, I mean, you can generate, there's, there's women shooting 80 plus. No doubt. I mean, I've seen, you know, obviously we had Selena Lasota a couple of years ago and, I have never seen a, a girl shoot that hard. I mean, you know, when she's, she, she hit the crossbar and then go back to the midfield line, you'd be like, oh, my goodness. You know what I mean? Like, you'd be like, Whoa. You do not want to be in front of that one. <laughs> no, no. You don't want to be near that thing, you know? Uh, even now, like, we do shooting, like, we just use some shooting drills. And when, as we talk about all the time, the ball comes off the crossbar, you're just like, it's, it's dangerous. You're like, oh, my God. Like, these girls take a shot. The thing will rip the shot, hit the crossbar, and come flying back at them because they shot it so hard. And they're all you know, getting hit in their legs and ducking. And it's – it's uh, you know, they can definitely put some, put some heat on it. No doubt. Um, I want to, I want you got you to tell us a little bit about your, your philosophy, your offensive philosophy at Northwestern. Um, yes. Yeah, I think we've, we've talked about this a lot and, and, yeah. and quite frankly, you've been a big help to, to uh, big benefit to my offensive philosophy, our offensive philosophy. I mean, just from our discussions, I mean, I think um, we really want the kids to learn how to make decisions and we want to put them in decision-based kind of situations where they're making the decisions and they're learning from it and they're creating things and they're figuring out what they do good 
Um, I, I certainly got this from Dick Arbor and, and he was with someone that if you could do something good, whether it's shoot on the hand or shoot behind the back, do it. You know, we're not going to restrain you. Um, and we're not going to tell you what, how, what works for you, but just, you know, find things that work for you and make mistakes and, and, and figure it all out. And, and, you know, like you, we talk about a big believer behind the back passes. I mean, that's a, such an effective play. And so many times when you're growing up, you get yelled at for doing it or, you know, just don't, you know, you have to shoot old man all the time, but sometimes underhand's a better shot. Sometimes yeah. time is a better shot, depending on the angle or depending on what you need to do. So definitely encouraging creativity, encouraging um, kids to play. Not, you know, we don't try and not a lot of X's and O's, you know, during practices. Um, we don't want to break the break up the floor of practice. I mean, these girls only get an hour and a half or two hours a day to practice and they're a high, you know, pretty high charge academic environment. So uh, the last thing they need during those two hours is big breaks, you know, blow the whistle, bring it in you know, do this, do that. I mean, they just want to play and they want to be learned and they're smart enough to figure things out. And, you know, we trust them and we just, you know, we want them to have fun and play a fun style across. And that's by you know, a lot of you know, keepaways, a lot of four and four games, a lot of small size stuff. Uh, a lot of just playing. I mean, I think playing is the teacher. It's the best teacher. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, you know, we talked about this earlier in the podcast, how, you know, how we grew up we grew up just playing, but then when we became coaches, we started trying to figure out how to teach stuff. And then exactly, uh, let's rep, 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 rep it. And let's make sure that we do things, you know, a certain way, you know, like the whole overhand, yep. you know, the whole concept of, of passing overhand, you know, I mean, honestly, you, if you're really playmaking, meaning you're like in a scoring position, you're near the eight, you've got pressure on you. You're not really throwing it overhand unless you're, have no pressure on you because you have mm -hmm. to throw it around a person or around mm -hmm. the pick. No you doubt. Know, it's going to be, it, there's, there's like a, a gazillion different passes that you will make and angles that you'll make and mm -hmm. watching you guys develop your players through this model of decision-making based uh, is really fun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we talk about a lot of basketball too, and not that they're completely compar uh, you know, comparable, but um, you don't see a lot of like overhand passes in basketball. I mean, I, I just love watching the angles uh, basketball players use to get the ball and pick to pass and pick and rolls and yeah. all the little things they do. It's, you know, um, we talked a little bit, I think earlier this year about Luka Donick and uh, just the way he gets the ball to people and the way he, it's just amazing. And no, there's no reason why you can't uh, do the same things in lacrosse. Luka, Luka Doncic, is it Donkick? I can't even uh, I, I probably pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no, but he is such a model that every every lacrosse player, and I kind of feel like almost every women's lacrosse player should definitely watch because the way he attacks you is not it's it's so under control and he just shields, he basically gets a step and then does hostage dribble, where he yep. basically holds you on his back while he's like buying time for 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 deception and decision making. And oh that what a what a technique that you could, you know, you could use in women's lacrosse if you can slow down and basically just get leverage, right? Yep, we talk about it all the time. And watching that, watching him play the last year was awesome. And, you know, we talk with Jamie, and we talk about all the time, too, about, you know, the advantage of a short dodge versus a long dodge and get, just getting a step versus a, a long dodge where, you know, you, you, you're going to, it's so much harder to do something after out of a long dodge going full speed. And the slide's coming quicker, and your ability to make a decision at that speed is a lot harder. And there's so many things that um, come into play when you're going a lot, going so when you, you know, going faster. And the thing we talk about, we talked about too, like you always hear from when you're growing up, you got to go on a thousand, you got to go hundred percent, go hundred percent, go hundred percent. Move your feet. It, yeah. Move your feet. Don't, you know, don't back, don't back, don't back in, you know? And it's like all those things, some of them, they work. You know what I mean? Like uh, if you're freezing people, uh, hanging them up and all those things create so much more opportunity than some hard powered, hard downhill dodger. Everyone knows what you're doing. Jimmy Mack was a perfect example of that. Oh, yeah, he certainly, he certainly was. I mean, Jimmy Mack was the most unathletic four-time All-American probably you want to see. I shouldn't say that because he was a good basketball. He'll kill me. No, he, he was, was a great athlete, athlete, but he wasn't yeah. fast. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't fast, and he just he was like like you said, he figured it all out. He knew what his uh, abilities were, and uh, he knew how to use them, and he knew how to use his body and control things and look away feeds and all, all the things that uh, you know you do to kind of be really really good. And you know what? Like those are things that he didn't learn. And no one taught coach him that. He, he right. got that from playing with his older brothers and uh, just summer leagues and Swanica High School with you know Tashman and uh, Angel Keys and all those guys. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, you guys um, have really uh, been leaders in the uh, in the world two man game in women's lacrosse, which in men's lacrosse, you know, I would say it's 
got to be like 50 to 70% of every possession you're seeing two-man games of. Women's across, it's getting there. But um, talk a little bit how you guys have uh, evolved that and integrated that into your, into your program. Well, I think it goes back, and again, I, guess I, I, I definitely give you some credit because a lot of the conversations we've had over the years have definitely influenced on some of the things we do. So um, there's no doubt that your, your knowledge and, and ability and all this stuff and your experience has helped me and helped us kind of incorporate some of the things. So, but I think really, um, you know, a couple of years ago when the shot clock was coming, we decided that, you know, we want to get ahead of this thing. We want to play a little faster. We want to figure out how to take advantage of the shot clock, how to get more possessions. And, and, you know, I think at the time Tufts was killing it. Tufts was scoring like 30 goals a game in, yeah. in division three, you know, John Daly and the whole crew were, were, were really running it. So like, Oh, cool. Let's play fast. All right. You know what I mean? Not, you know, that's, that's the way to go. We got to play fast. You know? So we had Selena Lasota coming in as a freshman and we we're just like, all right, let's just play fast. Let's get 40 shots a game and let's, you know, do all these things. We started doing it. We like, so we started to try to practice like that a little bit. And we figured out that, you know, you could get 40 shots a game, but you know, when, when, you know, 30 of them are bad, you're not doing very, you know, it's not that good. You know what I mean? And when your shooter percentage is in the thirties, it's kind of hurting you. So what's the best way to get, to kind of get good shots and get like, you know, good percentages and good angles and all that stuff. And then came in our conversations and like, you know, this is watching the Canadians watching box. Like, you know, this is why they shoot so well is where they shoot from, how they shoot. And the angles they're shooting at. It's not downhill dodges, it's more east west though. And that's kind of where it originated. Like, let's try to really focus on the two man game in order to create more so east west shooting. And then it's evolved, obviously, to more now figuring out the different looks, the different passes, you know, you get into nation stuff and all the things those guys do. And, you know, now since we've been doing it for how long that's been, three, four, five years, the kids now are teaching each other, which is like, we really haven't done a lot this fall. Uh, you know, we really want to, you know, the kids are on Zooms all day. So we're not really trying to like, do a lot of coaching. We're just letting these guys. We're letting them play. We want them to come out and use lacrosse as a release. So we haven't done a lot of coaching, Jamie. When we were playing, you know, four and fours, five on fives, and all the things full field, it's incredible to see what they're actually doing without being told how to do it. Yeah. And when you go to the film and you do it all the time, you know, when you go, you're like, wow, look at what this girl just did, and she probably doesn't know why she did it or how she did it. And if you asked her to do it again, I don't know if she could. She probably couldn't because she's not thinking about it. We wouldn't be able to. Re but it's just so amazing to see them organically just kind of figuring it all out and doing it and just playing. And, 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 it, and it looks really, really good so far. So we'll see. It is. It's kind of a miracle when that stuff happens, um, but it's a miracle that happens a lot. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, when you think about the, uh, like letting them play in, in situations and let them figure it out. Um, it's kind of similar to, you know, the, 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 the scenario you just described where, you know, a girl does something that she's never done before. We've all done this. We've all like made a play and done reacted to something and our just our, our instincts took over and the skill that we already have takes over. Um, it's kind of like, it's kind of like humor when you just say something really funny and it just came to you. <laughs> and like, you could never do that again. You can never replicate that. You can't tell that story, um, but it's, but it just happens when you start <laughs> becoming completely ingrained in the situation. And it's, it, it is, it's really cool. It's really fun. And it's very counterintuitive. Because yeah. most coaches would think you would have to practice something to do it, when in fact that scenario will never happen again. Mm -hmm. You can't exactly recreate right. it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, I can't remember. Yeah, someone, a hockey coach, I can't remember who I was talking to years ago, said the same. You know, at one point, said the same thing. It was, There's no playing hockey that ever happens it's exactly the same ever. Ever. You know, it's not like it's not like football where you know it's everything's diagrammed out and you can kind of know what those guys are doing. But lacrosse is the same way. You know, there's no nothing that you do on the field is ever going to happen exactly like that ever again. So you know, trying to coach, how do you coach? You can't coach that. You can't. You know, what I mean, if you try to coach something that's never going to happen again. Yeah, you make can't coach sense. humor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um. So, free play has been a topic we've talked a lot about. Um, and it is, um, we are in such a, a world of what I call one-legged pedaling drills to improve your bike riding. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, I like it. We talk about it. I love, you know, the, the footwork stuff and all that stuff's amazing, but, um, you know, there, there are no ladders on the lacrosse field, you know what I mean? And, and there are no hurdles and all those things. So, um, you know, that stuff's good for you for building strength and all the quickness stuff, but. 
I think people tend to get over and enthralled with that stuff and, and do a little too much of it. I, I know I did. I, I was so into when I was a young head coach into athletic skill development. We did mm-hmm. so many agilities and so man, so much footwork and all this stuff. And then we would go out and then it's like, okay, well, now we have to try to like, you know, use deception. Yeah. And <laughs> what I started realizing that, and I, I think I've referenced this at some on some podcasts, but what I started realizing was that when you use deception and fakes with your, let's just talk about faking passes, pumping, pumping it, you know, let's say you're on the run and you're running right-handed towards X and you want to like roll back really quickly. What I realized was if you fake a pass, not only will you draw a check or a defender stick to try to get in the lane, which will screw up their footwork, but it also naturally creates your own footwork that is conducive to that rollback. Meaning, okay, when you throw on the run right-handed, you're going to throw it off your, off your right foot. Your right foot's going to come down as you're throwing that ball on the run. Whereas if you were jump shooting, you'd be off your left foot, right? Right-handed. You throw it, your right foot comes down. But that's also the foot that you really want to decelerate on when you're trying to roll back really quickly, your second to last step. It's like the hockey stop change of direction technique. Mm-hmm. I know this is like a little hard to imagine in everybody's heads, but I guess <laughs> what I've realized is your hands and feet work together. And when you start faking, it creates natural hesitations and it creates natural footwork conducive to changes of direction as well. And, in, and actually, if you just let them play, they'll actually all just figure all that out together. The footwork yeah. happens with the IQ of the deception, which by the way, is so important because what would be better than trying to beat your man with a better change of direction or trying to make them defend defend a pass fake that makes them take two extra steps anyways? No doubt. No doubt. It's it's so true. It's so true. Especially like, um, I, so maybe more so in the girls' game. I think if you watch the girls before girls practice, they come out and they're all, they're, the girls are great with their stick tricks. Like they're doing stick fakes and they're, they're it's, it's a big thing, girls across, whatever. They all got these routines and and uh, when they go on the wall, they're amazing on the way. And then all of a sudden, you know, you tell them to dodge it 100 miles an hour. Then the coach says, all right, you got to dodge it full speed. Well, all that stuff then you just did for the first 15 minutes of practice is useless because none of it you can do at the, at the speed you want them to play. So, like, you know, you have to figure out how to take, like you said, deception and the faking it. At what speed or what, what, what kind of control can you do that at? And that's a, that's a big thing that I think we're, we're finding and that is you, you got to play slow. You know, you got to slow yourself down. You got to be controlled and more things will open up. And not only more things open up, more space and opens up, especially in women's lacrosse where you, know, you have seven people down there inside the eight. You have to try to figure out how to open up space and, and, and dodging, long dodging doesn't create space. You know what I mean? Playing controlled and a little slower, um, you know, does it, when you freeze slides. I mean, that's what's a lot of that. Freeze, don't let the slide, freeze the slide, freeze that person with some deception and then maybe split the gap. You know what I mean? Those are the type of things that I think have become, that we find have been more and more effective than just heavy, heavy dodges. Yeah, totally. And slowing down, slowing down. And, and I'll say it in men's and women's lacrosse, slowing down is like the whole key. It doesn't mean you don't want speed. It just means that if you just use your speed and that's all you use, it's more predictable. Yeah. It's easier to react to. You can see it coming. You're going to run into people. Mm-hmm. There's a really cool quote from uh Matt Hasselbeck told me a story about Jerry Rice when he was like at the end of his career, he was playing for the Raiders and he was pretty slow. And somebody was like, Jerry, you got some defensive back guarding you. He's so much faster than you. How are you going to deal with that? And he was like, oh, he's only going to go as fast as I let him go. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. That's why you see some of these, you know, these older, more experienced guys, you know, they're, they're, they're yeah. They're not as athletic as they used to be, but they're better because they understand what they need to do with the Back to uh, Vinny Sombrano. Oh, Vinny. <laughs> uh, Vinny was the best. Vinny was... Uh... <laughs> the free play, um, though, you know, um, back to this, just to sort of finish this topic off. Um, everybody feels like they need to work. You know, you got to, like, put your work in. And it's true. If you want to be great, you want to outwork people, but... But honestly, the magic is in the play mm-hmm. on, on every level. If you have a choice between going and playing a, a, a game with friends, and I don't care if it's hoops or soccer or lacrosse with small nets, whatever, but playing a game 
is going to teach you more than all the wall ball in the world. Wall ball will, will make you stronger and, and it'll sharpen your skills a little bit, but it doesn't make you better mm -hmm. at the sport because mm -hmm. sport isn't about throwing it against the wall and catching it. It's about other people. It's context. Um, and I feel like we're in a society where everybody's just like, well, I just got to get, I got to go shoot. Mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. got to get my reps in, get my ladder, dodge my cones. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what's your advice to, to people as far as like getting better with that in mind? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I mean you, like you said, I think what's lacrosse is it's not, I think the way it's the way it's treated almost now is as an individual sport. And that's very hard um, to kind of, when, when you get to high levels to actually figure it to be, be good, to be successful. So um, I, I think like you, you know, we've talked about this a ton, but find people in your neighborhood, be like you said, do the free to go play pickup games. You know, it's not tennis balls. We do, you know, we all do it. Grab some tennis balls, grab people, boys, girls, any age group. I mean, we did it all quarantine. We got a group of boys and girls in the neighborhood age, ranging from six to 14. And then we all get out, we went out there in the backyard and played three or four times a week. And the funny thing was they all got better. And by the, you know, by, uh, you know, now we still, it's unbelievable to see how well these kids have good, good, and the kids, these kids have never played lacrosse. Well, these are all hockey players, basketball yeah. kids, and we give them a stick and a tennis ball. And, you know, you, you know, jump, one kid jumps in the cage and they're all just doing fakes. And that's the way to play. And they have fun doing it. And like you said, they're probably working a lot harder doing that. And they don't realize it than they would on a wall or on a ladder, or all those other things, because it's a competitive environment. And they're figuring out how to play together. And you can't play, you can't do enough of that. If there's ever a choice between, you know, some personal trainer or a ladder or whatever it may be and playing pickup with four or five of your buddies, uh, you got to take that ladder. You got to go play with the kids. You know what I mean? You got to play because you don't get that. You don't get it enough. You don't get those experiences that we had like Caniac Summer League or Long Island Lacrosse Club. They just don't exist anymore for a lot of these kids. So you got to figure out ways to kind of get better and develop those skills. And it's incredible to see just in short, when even like Jamie, we first started playing, you know, you first started going back to the two-man stuff. People are like, oh, girls aren't going to be able to catch in tight spaces. You know what I mean? They're not going to be able to do that. It's just it's the sticks. And it was incredible how quickly they were able to do it. Oh, they like can do anything. It's an, it was an unbelievable. In tight spaces and, and catching passes in the middle and all the little things that need to be successful in two-man stuff, they were doing it immediately. And it was so cool to see. And, and, and then once they get it, they develop, and then they start developing the different things and behind the back passes. And, oh, they can never throw behind. We, we, got, we have drills now that are just behind back passes in practice. And literally, like, they don't miss. And it's just, uh, it's pretty cool to see. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's also so much fun. And just to be clear, it doesn't mean you shouldn't go work on your game. No, no. I mean, you got to lift. You got to do all You got to put the There is a lot of stuff I mean, to do. Yeah. It's, just, yeah. it's just that, you know, if you ever have a choice, play a pickup game. Yeah. And also when you get, here's the other thing I think too. I think when you get to a certain age and you've played enough and you played a lot of pickup and you are, you're really fluent with the game, then you can go in the backyard by yourself and you can actually imagine things the way they're gonna happen. Whereas mm -hmm. yeah. you don't really know and you're just trying to work on a move against a cone what are you actually getting better at? Because you don't even know necessarily how to control that person. Once you know how to control a defender with your postures, you can, if you understand that and you can like literally control them with your dodging posture or your, or your shooting posture or your, or your feeding posture or your post-up posture, when you really understand the feel of that, you can go by yourself and, and work on stuff. But until you have that feel, what are you actually working on? That's so true. And that's, that's such a good point. I, I can just imagine Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant when they're you know in the gym in the morning, they're visualizing something. They are. They're, they're visualizing who they're going against, what they're going to do. If he does this, you know, it's just, uh, but because they've done, you know, they've grown up playing basketball. I mean, they're so good at the, 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 the game. It's, it's so true. I, I, you make such a good point there when it comes to being able to kind of visualize what you're going to do when you, when you, when you train by yourself. And then the other piece we were talking about that, the miracle of, uh, the miracle of doing things that you've never done before. That is, that's a thousand percent related to how you're being defended in this situation. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, you can't recreate that if you've never done it before and you've never even thought of it, but you just reacted to it. And that's, that is like, but you will be able to recreate that later once you realize that that works for you. And mm -hmm. there's so many examples of these little subtleties I watch a lot of film of, of free play. We play a lot. I watch it all. I film it. 
And I just get kind of blown away by what, what kids are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's, like I said, I, we do the same thing. We, like, when you watch practice and you're actually not watching for what they did wrong and actually watching what they're doing, what they did, you're just like, Whoa, <laughs> like, look at that move. Like I, I think I, early in the fall, I was a freshman and uh, I, I was starting to show something and she's like, I don't understand that. I'm like, well, I caught myself and I'm like, you know what? You did it. I, I took my phone out. I said, look, let's go back to the scrimmage on Saturday. You, you did this. That's why I was actually brought it up. She's like, Oh, look at you. Oh, I don't know why. You know, she's had no idea. She did it. I watched it, but it was so, it was good. so cool. Yeah. I did a podcast with this, uh, this guy, Ted Sadukin from, he's a, he's a uh, skills. He's a hockey coach. He's like a skills coach in the KHL. <laughs> no and, yeah. And we were talking yeah, the, about the Russian league? concept. Yeah. In the Russian league. <laughs> and he's really into the cold free play model as well. And he said, he watched his son, who was like eight years old, do a really high level move that was kind of like a redodge in, 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 in lacrosse in which he kind of like was going down left-handed down the right wing and he kind of opened up and like, you know, pulled it back like he was going to f- pass back and then he reattacked underneath. And, and it was like a hesitation move. And so he said, hmm, well, let's see if let's, let's do a drill on that and see what it looks like. And the kid couldn't do it. But he did it against live play in a three-on-three game several times. And when it came to doing it against a cone, he couldn't do it. And I was thinking to myself, well, would you rather have the athlete that can do it in a game but can't do it against a cone or someone who's, like, awesome against cones but can't or doesn't <laughs> do the game? <laughs> That's so cool. It's, it's, it just makes so much sense. It's so true. So Really, awesome. um, really great stuff, Scotty. I, I uh, right. love talking lacrosse with you. Um, you're uh, – your perspective on the game is incredible. Your journey has been so fun to listen to, and I continue to enjoy uh, learning from you. Uh, same, Jamie. And then, like I said, I can't thank you enough for just you know, talking to me because I learned so much when I talk to you, and it's so beneficial. And you know, a lot of things that you know that's framed to what we do and what way I think has been uh, you know because of our discussion. So, thank you. Good stuff. Have an awesome day, and we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Jamie.